This is episode 49 of the Renew the Arts podcast. Do poor people make poor patrons? Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We're your hosts, Michael Minkoff and Abby Sitterly. Our motto at Renew the Arts is liberate Christian creativity, and we're doing this through cultivating Christian communities in and through the arts by inspiring art patronage and supporting artists. If you'd like to join our community of monthly donors and contribute to this podcast, please visit renewthearts.org forward slash donate. If you want to join the Porchlight Network and begin your journey into patronage, go to app.porchlight.art and sign up as a host or attender. All right, we're here again with Abby Sitterly, uh, who is the chief storyteller for Renew the Arts and Porchlight. Hey, everybody. You've probably read some of her interviews on the blog and such. That's me. <laughs> and she's here again. <laughs> so last uh, month, we released uh, episode 48, which was on three uh, intentional communities. We talked about Labrie and Bruderhof and Larsh. And um, mm-hmm. that was a good episode. Abby informed us all about a lot of things that I think will be helpful <laughs> as we process through. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. And uh, today, she's come back uh, to talk about patronage. And here's the reason for the episode. So one of the things that we have noticed is that when we talk about patronage, people have a certain idea about patronage. They get historical or traditional ideas of patronage um, kind of stuck in their heads and they start thinking, well, is this what you mean by that? Yeah. And we'll talk yeah. a little bit about how we've had to overcome that. Um, but first, I wanted to discuss, you know, maybe what is patronage? How does it function? How has it functioned? Yeah, this is where your expertise will reign, Michael. So I'm going to interview you on that, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah so let's do it. Awesome. Let's get dive right in. So what is patronage in your view? Ultimately, if you're talking about historical patronage, the word patron means father, which uh, you can see it still in Spanish, like Padron Peppers. If you've ever had like Padron Peppers, they are uh, every once in a while, like one in 10 will be called the Padron, like the daddy pepper, because it's hot and like Put nine that out in of some 10 Patron are just really mild. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So get a Padron right. Pepper and some Patron Tequila and you'll have a really patronizing experience. Oh, yikes. That's terrible. <laughs> Anyway, uh, and we'll talk about that too, even the the word patronizing and how it has altered uh, because of the shift in culture that's happened uh, since the heyday of patronage. So at the beginning, it was a Greco-Roman concept. Um, Patron is, you know, from the the Latin and the, um, and basically you had important people in your local environment. They could, most of the time they were important because they were, uh, they had status, so now when we think of important people, we think more like they're important because they have money. But at this time in the early Greco-Roman period, they are uh, they have money because they're important. And so you have uh, various different, uh, you know, maybe it's the governor or the mayor or uh, maybe it's a, a local uh, military leader or um, these kinds of things. They ended up gaining some kind of status and recognition before the rest of the community. And then because of that, they end up having like social credit and they can vouch for people. And um, you see politically the patron system become feudalism where the king becomes the, the patron, quote unquote, of the entire community. And the vassals owe the king uh, un, 
conditional allegiance. Right. This is sort of what patronage originally was about, that you had a big daddy who was in that town and, uh, you know, almost like patriarchally uh, the father of the town. And we even mm-hmm. talk about it when we talk about forefathers or, you know, these kinds of things. These are these are leaders with great status and, and you know, that everybody wants to um, to show some allegiance to and service to because their ideas or their status or their whatever are so great. And um, so the the patron system originally it was established like that. If you wanted to get a job, a position, you needed a patron. And so uh, if you were just a young apprentice, you might go and say, hey, I, I found this this rich guy or this important guy or this well-known guy and he vouches for me and he's getting me a position as a teacher of rhetoric or as a uh, iron worker or as a whatever. Mm-hmm. And so he would go and you know send a letter of recommendation of sorts. And now this guy is my patron. But think about it like a godfather, right? Like yeah. The, that, that as much as it's valuable to have the godfather on your side because the godfather can get you positions and, you know, make, make connections for you and all this kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. also the case that if you cross the godfather or show him disrespect or uh, in some right. way end up like embarrassing him publicly, it's really, really bad for you. I'm holding back my Corleone impression right now. I just need you to know that. but. <laughs> So, so, uh, so yeah, so it was a really similar situation. You can see, you know, positives, but also uh, a lot of capacity for uh, corruption there. Um, because sometimes people had status and they didn't deserve it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's sons of kings or grandsons of kings where it's like, well, this person is just a glutton and a horrible person and they're yeah. doing nothing for the community. Mm-hmm. They're just leeching on the community's resources. Right. Just nepotism. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And then it's like, well, this is a terrible system at that point. You know, mm-hmm. the, the people are thinking that. When you think about that, you know, if that's what patronage is, it makes a lot of sense if that's the origin of patronage that people would think about patronage now in negative terms. Mm, certainly. Um, it, right. Even the word patronizing tells you that that's the case. Mm-hmm. Where the idea that someone is a, is a quote unquote superior of mine, that to whom I owe allegiance and honor is something that most democratic-minded people think is repugnant. And so it used to be, and this is, right. this is true, like even when you read like Jane Austen, um, she uses the word condescension and patronized in totally unironically positive terms. They're not right. demeaning at all. They it's aren't the demeaning. fact that there are superiors, yeah. there are aristocrats, and when they show you favor, they are condescending mm-hmm. to you, and that is a good thing. Yeah, we have a totally cynical view of hierarchy today, yeah. um, especially in contrast to back then. I mean, that was just the way that things were. And if you had a benevolent person at the top, that made you more agreeable to that sort of system. But I think after many, many <laughs> ages of watching that sort of play out and seeing oh, there are plenty of bad actors that fit that role, uh, we have a little bit more of a balanced and maybe uh, not really balanced and cynical view of things after all. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it was Winston Churchill that said democracy is the absolute worst system of government that there is, and it's the best we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Chesterton says a lot about that, too, that, like, the the crowd is going to be, uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, actually, but um, 
there's just no way to have a perfect system where every single person, even the dead, um, can like chime in and give their thoughts. Right. Yeah. So like with this democratic minded uh, uh, approach, which all of us have just we're, we're inundated to such an extent in that thinking that we can't think outside of it very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so even to the point where like it would be hard for me to switch the switch that I needed to, to switch in my brain so that patronizing w- no longer had a negative connotation to me. Mm, um, or mm-hmm. that condescending no longer had a negative condescend, uh, <laughs> negative condescension to me. Um, yeah, good negative luck. connotation <laughs> to me. Um, it just wouldn't. It, it would be hard for me to do that, and uh, that's because we're totally immured in this environment where the market system is kind of the only way that we view things, and egalitarian and democratic models are pretty much what we think are fundamentally right. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Now. I, I'm not going to deny any of that at first. I'm just going to 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 gently, I guess, ask how we got to the place where we're at right now because we're clearly there. So how did we get there? Right. And um, this is uh, this is pretty much what you were saying as far as like when you have a system that is so susceptible to corruption, like a monarchy, for instance, is great as long as the king is a good man or the queen yep. is a good woman. <laughs> But as soon as you have a bad king or a bad queen, and if you have a series of bad kings and bad queens, it's like, man, I am done with monarchy, Mm -hmm. right? Like you just get to a point where that's the way it feels. So this obviously occurred, like if you talk about like the the feudal age, which Mm -hmm. then, um, you know, in some ways just collapsed. Right. That whole system and hierarchy collapsed. Mm-hmm. And the and, French um, Revolution is testament to that. Well, so is the American Revolution. That's sure. what's so interesting is yeah. that actually all over the, the, the world and almost independently of one another, although drawing from a lot of the same thinkers and spirit, you have this movement towards, uh, you know, self-directed um, sovereign nation states that are either republics or democracies. Mm-hmm. And... Um, this is a very different kind of feel than monarchy. And the reason for it was the corruption of the, of the monarchs. Not even the corruption of monarchy, but just that monarchy is so susceptible to corruption. And so you have sure. like in, in our system this idea of checks and balances, which can only occur when you have competing interests. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Um, in any mm-hmm. historical transition from one movement to another, like you're like, well, when did it stop being the patron system and when did it start being the market system for the selection of uh, valuable art mm-hmm. uh, or for the support of artists? There's no way of determining the exact day, you know, on this day in 1753. <laughs> um, it, it, there's no way of determining because the, the patron system extended beyond its heyday in certain places and the market system sort of predates its heyday uh, by a little bit in certain places. But mm-hmm. I think one yeah. of the most important events that occurred uh, in terms of the history of patronage um, was the uh, Handel's Messiah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, talk so about whatever that. you think. Okay, all right. So whatever you think about Handel or Handel's Messiah, um, the up until that point, such a humongous endeavor because this is a really big project. Because if you think about a project like uh, a symphony, you know, we might think, oh, well, you could just get on your computer and you just get on Sibelius and you just like write out your stuff <laughs> and then it gives you some like, 
you know, some fake strings and some fake choral sounds so God that you can MIDI. figure out what it's going to yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, and then you've got like a full piece and you could just, you know, you could just put it out there into the world and people, people could listen to it. It doesn't sound exactly the same, but at least you're able to get the work out there, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. that's not the case uh, in the time of Handel. If you write a piece and, you know, you wrote it on paper, you you maybe heard some of the ways that it could function on a piano or a keyboard or harpsichord or whatever else you have available to you or a violin. Um, but you've never heard that piece and you can't even hear what it might sound like until mm-hmm. you actually get what? A ton, I mean, 60 singers, you know, an mm-hmm. orchestra with 50 or 60 players. No uh, easy feat, like, that's for sure. Not only is it not an easy feat, it's just expensive. Yeah. Like it just costs mm-hmm. money. Um, the admin alone to, on that would <laughs> be incredible. Oh, I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Because you got like uh, all the players have to be paid per day. All of them have to be paid to be there. You have to find a location large enough to house them that sounds good. You got to find if you can't conduct it yourself, you got to find a conductor. And uh, that was funded through patronage for a long period of time where you have uh, a duke or uh, you know an archbishop or somebody and they're like, we want... Uh, really good music. We have this up and coming genius who is going to be able to, uh, you know, make something really, really cool that everyone's going to think is awesome. And that'll make us look really good. And also it will, uh, it will be like really awesome for us in terms of like keeping all of our, our people satisfied, you know, bread and circuses mm-hmm. kind of thing. Seems like a and win-win. it's a total win-win and it's worth the money. And so, you know, at first anyway, and it, it increases their prestige, within, which then kind of like is honor upon honor, you know, and, and, and maybe they even get more because of the prestige increase. So anyway, yada, yada, yada. Well, Handel had trouble with patrons um, for various different reasons. Some of them didn't recognize the value of what he was doing. Um, I mean, but that's not even fair because a lot of artists had trouble with patrons sure um yeah mozart had a very very hard time for instance finding patrons and he Mm -hmm. looked like through his entire career and you listen to like the pieces that mozart created under commission and you're like how did no one just say you will be my artist forever and i will give you anything you want (laughs) hindsight but they didn't Exactly. Yeah. At the time, they were all like, well, we don't know that Mozart is one of the greatest geniuses of music to ever live. Well, a prophet gets no welcome in his hometown, you know? (laughs) So Yeah. And even in other towns, Mozart was considered to be an an uncouth and and at times difficult, you know, quote unquote, difficult person to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so was Handel for various different reasons. So he just came upon this idea that like, you know, I'm not going to be able to find an archbishop or a duke that's going to give me the place and the money that I need. And so I'm just going to fund this uh through uh bankers and ticket sales. So like he kind of like bankrolled it through loanage mm-hmm. and then paid himself back through ticket sales to the masses. And this is one of the first times yeah. that you ever see a project of this size funded through, like, direct to the people who consumed it, quote unquote. Very different, yeah. And not, um, I don't think surprisingly, this is the first time you see the use of the word consumer in common use. Like, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll see that it was in the 1740s, which you start seeing the word consumer being used in the English language. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so you kind of have this movement. You can see that there's like been a tidal shift, a sea change of sorts. 
uh, in the funding of art that happened around this time. Now, um, and it's obvious why it happened. It happened because geniuses like Handel couldn't get funding through patronage. Right. You have to innovate um, or die in a way. Yeah. And, and so, so the gatekeeping institutions had failed to actually present and preserve the best work that was available. Mm-hmm. And the people knew it. And so there was a loss of confidence in the gatekeeping institutions to do the job that they were supposed to be doing. Yeah, we don't because, see any of that today. Not at all. Oh, no, no. I mean, we're completely confident. <laughs> we're good in now. All we learned our, our lesson. Broking. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So the loss of confidence resulted in this movement towards a more democratic, like, let me choose for myself. Because mm-hmm. I can't be sure that the people choosing for me have my best interests at heart. Right. Do you think that's why many people think patronage is only for the rich? Because it does have that kind of stranglehold of, well, we have all this history of arts patronage. It seems to be an elite, very rich, very important figure of uh, society kind of role uh, in the dynamics between uh, creation of art and the production of it. So how could I ever feel like... I could really do what they did on a consumer level. Do you think there's a correlation there? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's kind of a misconception there as well, though, because I don't think, I think there's a myth of choice within the market system. Mm -hmm. Because like you could say, who was it that funded uh, Handel's Messiah. Was it the people who bought the tickets or was it the people who bankrolled it before tickets had been sold? It's a good question. And I would say that the bankrollers are more responsible for the existence of Handel's Messiah. Sure. Because if they hadn't fronted the money at risk, right? And in some ways, this mm-hmm. is Handel himself who had enough connections that he was able to get this, you know, credit. Right, none of the production would have occurred, the rehearsals, yeah. the uh, right. getting rid of the one flautist because he kind of sucks, like that, <laughs> that whole thing. That doesn't yeah. happen. Right. Yeah, right. And, and without that, without that whole process of actually making it, rehearsing it, having the place, having the money to hire the musicians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you don't have a thing you can present to the public. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, so in a sense, it's not that you have jettisoned the gatekeeping institution you've just transitioned to a different gatekeeping institution that's true and particularly transitioning power from the hands of aristocrats status right Mm -hmm. people yeah like kings and archbishops over into the hands of people who have money whether or not they have status so you have Mm -hmm. like terms like the nouveau riche you know the new rich as opposed to the old money Mm, um, the, mm-hmm. the old money were people who had money because of their status. And right. the nouveau riche are people who are trying to gain status through money. And they just come with different agendas too, yeah. Well, yeah, different agendas, but also, and here's what's, here's what's really interesting. So na- name some really important, any, seriously, name any important thinker that just comes right to okay. the top of your head. Uh, Sovereign Kierkegaard. Okay, so Kierkegaard was what? What what class was he part of? Oh, aristocratic for sure. Exactly. How is it that he was able to be a philosopher? Like if you think about Marx, even Marx, of all the people, quote unquote, uh, vouching for the the little guy, um, right. you'd think that he himself would be a little guy. He wasn't. 
he was part of the aristocratic class. It was, uh, he was he had he had money to have leisure, um, so that he could think and write. Um, most philosophers, actually, if you look back and you're like, who who were the philosophers and what class did they come from? Most of them came from the aristocratic class. There's two reasons for this. One, they had the money to have the leisure to write and to think, but the other is that they had the leisure to be educated in all of the history and the structures of taste-making, philosophy, writing, literature, music, mythos, religion, etc., that would eventually become important to their thought process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. So that was the value of patronage, is that even though you have a bunch of corrupt and self-seeking people, at the very least, they're highly literate. Mm-hmm. And so, you know... That was part of the problem is that when the aristocratic class became more interested in parties and amusements than it did in uh, cultivation, then you have the situation where if you've seen like Amadeus, you've got like, you know, the baron who just has a bunch of uh, sycophants, you know, flocking him on either side. And he comes up and he says, you know, Mozart, my sycophants have told me that you use too many notes, you know, (laughs) and he has no taste. And he has no discernment, and he mm-hmm. and he, even though he has the leisure to play the piano, he, he doesn't have any insight at all into it or whatever. Mm-hmm. So like he's just right. he's just this terrible, like thoughtless, uh, thumb fingered philistine. Mm-hmm. I think that's the view that a lot of people have of of patrons that there are people who don't necessarily have the wherewithal to know how to do the actual craft. Um, but they're definitely going to share their opinion and they're going to make sure that their agendas are present in it. And again, that's sort of a cynical view, but I think it's one that a lot of people hold. Well, yeah, because it was accurate for a period mm-hmm. of time. Certainly. Um, you yeah. know, in Mozart's reply, which is like one of the best lines in that movie, was like, well, which notes would you have me remove? And, um, <laughs> you know, and and this, you know, the, the patron is kind of just like, well, because he doesn't know anything <laughs> about what he's talking about. But that wasn't always the case. And when you think about the uh, the Medici's and these kind of people who actually did patronize the arts and science and everything like that, a lot of them were people of discernment. Mm-hmm. And, and they utilized their incredible discernment and literacy and education in order to choose things that actually were good. And they had insight into the things that actually were good. And one of the things you lose when you go over into the market system is whoever's choosing it, whether it's just people who have the money to choose or people who, you know, are, you know, just your average person who's like, I like that. And so I'm going to buy this uh, Taylor Swift record or whatever. (laughs) Um, In both cases, you're not talking about people who necessarily have access to or great incentives toward discernment and literacy. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which makes Spotify a really nice thing because you can be as indiscriminate as you want and just select and fill your ears with uh, whatever strikes your fancy at the moment. So it becomes not necessarily like you're a savant of classical music and you know everything there is to know about it, but it's that like the amount of, for lack of a better word, content uh, that you can consume really determines uh, that you're a man of not much discernment unless you really have all the time to sift through all of that content. And even if you did have the time to sift through the content, the content is not necessarily going to direct you towards literacy. Yeah, it's not going to cultivate that for sure. It's just going to satiate you. Hey there, Renew the Arts podcast listeners. I'm interrupting just for a minute to thank our community of monthly donors. 
Your consistent contributions make the work we do at Renew the Arts possible. I'm so grateful for your partnership as we cultivate Christian communities in and through the arts by inspiring art patronage and supporting artists. If you'd like to join our community of monthly donors and contribute to this podcast, please visit renewthearts.org forward slash donate. And if you want to join the Porchlight Network and begin your journey into patronage, go to app.porchlight.art and sign up as a host or attender. So yeah, so this lack of discernment is a major issue, I think, with the market system. The people who are uh, bankrolling things are not going to bankroll things unless they think that they're going to sell. Yeah, that's true. And so what you can see is that that created, even though the market system should have created absolute freedom, you know, like pretty much unrestricted freedom to create whatever you want as an artist, it actually did quite the opposite. Um, I would say that the limitations on artists now are actually narrower than mm-hmm. they were during the worst times of the patronage system. I think that's has something to do with the fact that it has totally stripped the artist of like the artistic spirit. I mean, you can see this in the language now. Like we say artists are content creators and yeah, they create content. content. Right. And like that even that shift in language focuses so much on like the product rather than process or the actual artistic temperament and inspiration and even the like ephemeral aspects of uh, creativity that just compartmentalizes it into, like you said, something we can sell. And then you sort of, uh, as an artist, delve into this rat race of constantly needing to produce content. And, you know, there's like a viral TikTok or reel where it's like, everything is content. Everything is Mm -hmm. content. Like I need to film Mm -hmm. every part of my process, record Mm -hmm. uh, every voicemail I've ever (laughs) received from someone else that's slightly personal include it as an interlude in my album and like that'll help sell the narrative and then this just compounds to the to the point where um you're exhausted and you might even lack inspiration and discipline to keep going because now it's less about the art for art's sake and more about how can i survive in this market yes Yes. And that's exactly what it becomes. How can I survive? And Mm -hmm. people see this is invisible coercion. Um, Right. Mm -hmm. Visible coercion, like when a patron, you know, the godfather shows up at your house and is like, you're going to sleep with the fishes unless you write me a new record, Frank Sinatra. Um, That's that's one thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But like on the on the other side of things, you have invisible coercion. And it's a lot obviously because it's invisible. It's a lot harder to detect. Mm -hmm. But when you have an artist who's thinking. I want to make it in music, let's say, and let's just stick with music. I want to make it in music, and I'm a Christian artist, and how do I make a living? Well, there's a really narrow range of things that people will pay me for. I can become a worship leader. Okay, I'm going to become a worship leader, and I'm going to uh, put together really carefully crafted hymns that uh, that most people will not really appreciate very deeply. Or I can do covers of Chris Tomlin songs or like replications or Xeroxes of mm-hmm. the most popular contemporary Christian praise worship that I can find. And so then all of a sudden it's like you're fitting into this mold. You're not necessarily uh, sincerely invested in it. It's just that's the easiest way for you to actually make a living. It's a means you know, to an like, end, yeah. R- right. So, so like in the Proverbs, it says, a man will sin for a loaf of bread, therefore do not show partiality. And the, you know, when you think about it, it's like th- that's the invisible coercion that we're talking about. 
mm-hmm. that we have directed art into a narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower space because Definitely. artists are being coerced through the bread on their table to make the kinds of work that our undiscerning palates are familiar with and that bank rollers are willing to support because our undiscerning palates are familiar with it and might mm-hmm. consume it in large quantities. But we're not necessarily, there's like, where is the discernment happening? Well, I think you see that a lot with exposure too. Like, it's not just a monetary uh, means of success, but it's like, I need to get my music out there. Like, if I am producing all this stuff, uh, it needs to like get hooked into an algorithm. So then that means now I'm not just an artist writing music in my attic. Now I'm also a video creator and someone mm-hmm. who's like, uh, creating reels and TikToks and like viral posts on Twitter and trying to right. desperately get in front of someone who will deem that what I'm making is worth sharing with other people right. or take like Spotify, for example, like good luck getting your music played on Spotify if you're a small fledgling artist, unless you chill out to a playlist curator company who can like get your playlist on some like really cool like beach tunes playlists and stuff like that and good luck you have to pay money you have to uh reach out to different bloggers and beg them to feature your music on their blog and most of them are pretty harsh when they tell you no it's it gets demoralizing after a short period of time Mm -hmm. it's almost like what you're dealing with is not labor it's lottery where it's yeah, like absolutely you know you're if you're playing the lottery your most of your money is going to be wasted but if you don't play the lottery you never have a chance of winning and if you do win you only ever win big mm-hmm. um yeah and the likelihood is that you're not going to receive a harsh response the likelihood is that you're not going to receive any response you mm-hmm. just spent yeah. an hour or two crafting maybe more reading blog articles on that particular site listening to the kind of music that they're really interested in trying to figure out the overlap that there might be there and then writing them this well-crafted very personal email and you get zero response Mm -hmm. yeah and nobody has the budget for an entire research and development arm (laughs) of their band or (laughs) their livelihood that's just not possible so even that time that you're spending which is essentially playing long game like that's mm-hmm. time that you're taking off from work or you're not spending with your uh, kids or serving your church. There's a whole- Or making art. Yeah, or making art or just making art for art's sake and in worship or just for your own pleasure. Like there's so much that is lost even in like the um, instrumentalism and technicality that just has to go into essentially branding yourself. Exactly. Now, the cool thing about the patronage system is that it removes that burden from the artist. Tell me how. Well, you think the market system would become greater freedom and more localized. But because of the fact that you have bankrollers who will only bankroll something if if they themselves playing the lottery feel like they're going to get a huge return on their investment. They're looking for the next Blair Witch project. You know, they're willing to put in, <laughs> a, 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 you know, a, a $10,000 into it if they end up getting a few million in return. That's a humongous return and it costs almost nothing. You know what I mean? This is what most mm-hmm. record labels and studios are looking for now because that they're the bankrollers, right? They have right. no discernment they necessarily. They want easy wins. They want easy wins, right. And so they're either going to go with uh, cheap, very cheap long shots or expensive tentpole franchises 
Um, which is why when you look at like Disney Plus or, you know, Marvel movies, which is also Disney Plus, um, or Netflix or any of these other kind of things, they're, you're going to have like some, you know, some very cheap, low budget long shots, which might end up being like their biggest sellers ever because people actually want fresh and interesting content. Um, uh, or you're going to have just a bunch of tentpole stuff, things where it's like, we already know this is popular and that we can capitalize on it. So we just got to milk it for what it's worth and have some spinoffs and, you know, keep this show going for as long as it can go until it's just run out of all steam and just like squeeze every dollar out of it, you know, wrench and wring it until it's completely dry of everything of living th- quality, you know. That sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. <clears throat> That's what actually happens. Oh. So what that ends up meaning is that art becomes highly centralized. Like, for instance, when you think about where are most movies coming from? And it's like, I, not only can I tell you the, pl- the the distribution centers where they're coming from, whether Disney or Netflix or whatever, but I can actually even tell you the places where they're being made. Yep. And it's just this single totally. place that's then Hollywood or Atlanta serving the entire country with uh, movies. Right. Or music, you know, Nashville just becomes like the center of music and produces most of the music that most of the people in the entire country listen to on a regular basis. You would think the market would move the opposite direction because the patron system, oddly, was more localized than the current market system is in that. Right. Yeah. You know, certainly you have the patron artists of the Pope or the patron artists of this particular king, you know, et cetera. But you also would have patron artists of this particular local mayor or this particular local hero or this particular local archbishop and or bishop. And so, like, maybe those are lower tier patronages. But the thing is, do you know what most artists would would do to get one of those lower tier patronages? If it was like... It's yeah. like, all I have to do is be good, be talented in my local area, and I can become the court musician or the court playwright or the court whatever for this particular bishop in my local area, and I will make a living and be able to make work regularly, which is the case with like Bach, for instance, mm-hmm. like Johann Sebastian Bach, like probably one of the most important figures in all of music, made as much music as he made because his local church supported his life. And that's it. Now, that's yeah. that's not like hitting a lottery, really, although most artists would appreciate that. But see, that's why one of the reasons why the patron system is better, the patron system actually was never as centralized as the market system has become. Now, is that not weird? That is pretty strange. It seems like a that is not intuitive. Well, in a way, it sort of reminds me of like a sonnet, right? Like you need a border to be able to like express free creativity within that structure. And that seems like patronage is similar. Like there is enough of a structure where it allows you to be free versus being in sort of like the wild, wild west of the market. And Mm -hmm. so do you think that there's some like middle ground that can be achieved where we can entertain both structures or should we issue one, issue the other, uh, reform one or the other as well? Yeah. So so that is the real question. I, I personally think that we should go back to the patron model largely. Okie dokie. But I but I do not think that it should be an aristocratic patronage. Um, mm, I don't yeah. think that it should be based on on status first. 
I think it should be based on gifting. And do you think that should be mainly local? Yes, absolutely. So I'll just get in. We can talk about the Porchlight Network itself. Because this is part of the reason why we've we've actually created systemic things in the way that we talk about and structure Porchlight, which even still have not been, I don't think, adequate to um, shift the momentum. So Mm -hmm. I want to talk about those right now, which is that. So if you notice, Porchlight is not called a house show network or even a house network. It's called a host network. And there's a specific reason for that, even though um, it's really hard to sway people on this. But most people think if I'm going to host a show, I need to have a house, right? Right. This is not, well, that would immediately mean that patronage is back into that realm of elitism, where it's like, unless you have the money to have a house, you're not even part of the. Uh, discernment mechanism or structures of patronism. Unless you have a mortgage, you can't really pull this off. Exactly. I'm going to tell this story and I, you know, it may be that I end up having to cut this story depending on how I feel about this. Okay, we'll buckle up. Yeah, so let's just say um, one of the oldest Christian or I guess religious arts organizations that I know of that I've respected for a really long time when I first started in um, working in the arts uh, um, officially and formally with the Nehemiah Foundation for Cultural Renewal that I started with my dad in 2008, um, this was an organization that if you, you know, if I had had contact with them and been able to like be partners with them, I would have been over the moon ecstatic. Mm. So yeah. fast forward. I get this call from this executive director of this organization that I really desperately wanted to be a part of for a long, 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 long time. And he's talking about patronage. And I'm like, okay, cool. And you, you, you've been looking at our stuff. So you kind of understand where we're coming from. So what are your, what are your thoughts? You know, like, what are you, uh, what kind of programs are you thinking you're going to develop? So he's like, I'm glad you asked. And he's got all these brochures, really beautiful. And he gives them to me and they are all, you can become a patron for, for $10,000 a year. Whoa. You know, you know, and I'm like looking at it and I'm just like, man, I got to tell you, this is not going to accomplish what you're wanting to accomplish. No. Like, because this, because he asked me, because I had gone to an event that they put on and he asked me like, mm-hmm. did you like it? And I was like, well, I liked it pretty well. It's just, it felt really elitist. It felt really mm-hmm. exclusive. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so I was like, I just don't think this is going to work. The problem is that you are... Your, the structure of this will mean that you are only ever courting people with money. A person with money is not necessarily a person with discernment. What you yeah. need to be courting are people with discernment. Mm-hmm. They are the true patrons. Now, here's the problem. that We have been functioning in the market system for so many decades and maybe even so many centuries that um, most people don't have discernment. They have been yeah, trained, actually, not to have discernment. And so when Justice and I were working in this realm of like, okay, so how are we going to develop patronage? The first thing we said is we got to remove any language from the system of patronage or from this idea of patronage that makes it feel like you have to be rich, high, highly connected, or important 
in order to be a patron. Yeah, absolutely. I have talked to so many artists. I mean, that's my job. <laughs> I'm director mm-hmm. of artists right, here. So right. like I generally speaking, just deal with artists. And every single artist pretty much that I've ever dealt with, um, you know, when I've asked them like what, like bottom line, what what is your greatest desire right this moment concerning the work that you're doing? Mm-hmm. They'll say something along the lines of, I'm looking for an invested audience. Yeah. And so it's like if you're a person out there listening to this podcast and you don't have a lot of money and you're wondering, how could I become a patron if I don't have a house to host a house concert or I don't have access to, you know, important connections with this church or that church or this warehouse or this place or whatever. And I couldn't do that. It's like, honestly, the first thing that you should do is find an artist in your local community that you could give attention to, even if you don't think they're good right now. I'm just saying, like, there's probably an artist, visual artist or musician in your church or in your local community who is trying really hard to make work and um, just sit down with their album or go to wherever their work is being displayed and just actually give it your full undivided attention. Yeah. Until it's done. And then after you're done doing that, talk to the person who made the work and either tell them comments or thoughts that you had while you were in the process of, of, of engaging with the work or ask them questions. If you got nothing out of it and you're like, what, why didn't I get anything out of it? Was it because I felt like the work itself wasn't engaging? Why wasn't it engaging? Was it the problem with the work or was it maybe a problem mm-hmm. with me? Or maybe I don't know where this work is coming from. Maybe you could say, what kinds of artists influenced your work? What kinds of effect right. do you want to create with this work? What kind of communication are you trying to make with this work? Who are you Who are you writing for if it's a musician? Who is this song written for? Like what kind of audience were you attempting to speak to here? You know, there's all sorts of questions you can ask. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to already mm-hmm. be knowledgeable. To All you have to do is just give it your full and undivided attention and then engage with it afterwards with the artist. And I promise you, I promise you i promise 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 that the artist will deeply appreciate it i can speak to that for sure i mean that's the difference between being judgmental about it like oh that sucked versus curious of what is there that is missing that i'm noticing that maybe i could help with or offer direction or maybe that person is just writing a bunch of stuff where you're like you know what i can't identify i think i should ask and find out you know where's that coming from when you wrote that one line that sort of thing And I mean, just the support goes a long way. It doesn't necessarily even have to be outright monetary support through tips or whatever. I mean, uh, Katie and I and our band, we have uh, a bunch of people from our church who are um, older and love supporting us. And they come out to shows and they just like have a beer. And to know that they are there and like watching us with interest and excitement and like that support uh, really goes a long way. Uh, I mean, we just went to a show a couple weeks ago and uh, we were pulling in the parking lot and we saw friends in the parking lot that we didn't really remember ever even telling about the show. And they were like, of course, we figured we'd come out and go for a quick swim in the lake and then come and grab a beer and watch the show. And I mean, that's not like crazy amounts of patronization, but it's like, that's just what we needed, you know, that made yeah. the very long drive and the very long show that we had ahead of us seem so much lighter. And we were playing the show and kind of like 
happily expecting them to walk in at any minute. And then when they did, we know like, okay, there's a couple people here who um, are really interested in listening to our music for what our music is and not the glorified background music that most people are treating it as. So even right. that small amount of attention and care of attending a show or going to someone's art gallery opening or maybe even encouraging like your church to host somebody's art gallery opening, that sort of thing. I mean, that goes a long way. It doesn't have Absolutely. to be a $100 bill that you send them once a month. It can just be small things that can integrate really easily into your own lifestyle. And I mean, the possibilities are endless with that sort of thing. And to know that someone took the time to experience it, process it, give you feedback, but not only just like, hey, I liked it, but really thorough, interesting engaging uh feedback and just like their thoughts on it that can go a long way for an artist we can make all kinds of stuff out of that absolutely and i think this is going to shift when people start viewing patronage as servant oriented leadership now most of our porchite hosts already know this but but see in some ways when you go to an artist and you say here's some questions I invested in your work and I, I listened to your work. Why did I do that? Because I think in this particular area, you're superior to me. That's actually what you're saying to an artist when you invest that much time and energy into their work. You're saying in, in this realm, what you're making is something I couldn't make. I don't really understand all the ins and outs of it like you do. So in this particular area, I'm humbling myself to your giftedness. Okay? Mm, mm -hmm. And yeah. then w when you approach them with that spirit, that also creates this idea of like, since you are gifted in this area, will you teach me? Will you inform me? And here's the thing. Do you understand like how big a difference that would make in patronage if artists were the one responsible for teaching people discernment? That'd be pretty big. And if somebody ever asks you to teach them concerning the arts, I hope that you're as gracious as you can muster because like that's an opportunity you should not squander. Yeah. Um, Totally. But I wish that more people, rather than thinking patronage was a, an issue of superiority, like it was in its origins, I'll admit, in its origins, it was, I have a superior status to you. My version of patronage is kind of like inverting that, where it's like, I have resources, even just my attention, that you need. Mm. But I'm willing to humble myself to your giftedness and learn from you so that I can learn discernment and become your supporter and your advocate. Yeah. That. That's the kind of patronage that I think is actually going to um, change the face of the arts in Christendom at large. And I think kid could have the power to actually alter the, the, the shape of the culture generally. Mm -hmm. I think so. All right. So that's, that's all I've got for this one. Uh, it's gone on a little longer than usual. Um, and do you have anything to add, do you think, Abby? No, I think that's all really great. I think, uh, you know, as an artist, it is really tough to kind of fight the very small urge for me, um, but the urge to like do the real and TikTok um, kind of, I don't know, what's the right word for it? Like shilling, I think. I mean, mm -hmm. just paying homage to that as like, that's the means that's going to get me to a place where my music is... Uh, lucrative enough where I can like make it freely without thinking about like, how am I going to like buy toast tomorrow? <laughs> um, right. I think that's something that's uh, a really hard decision for just about every artist nowadays. It's like mm -hmm. the internet used to be an optional thing and now it's such an intrinsic part of our lives that there's no way um, for you to try to find a middle ground 
if you really want one, I think. Um, so there are sometimes like really great nonprofits like Renew the Arts, but then also churches that are really willing to um, include the uh, call of the artist in their mission statements and then their purpose and their events. And that's a really great thing and something we should foster on a communal level. Um, but I especially liked what you said about it being local too. Um, like the local church really should have uh, the responsibility of taking care of the artists in its town. Um, and that's not to say that you can't bring in big names and uh, encourage large concerts, which I know a lot of churches do, um, but also just finding the people that are already in your congregation, like you said, who um, are doing work and struggling and uh, trying to do honor to the call that they feel that God has placed on their lives and just coming alongside them, again, not even in a monetary way, uh, but just speaking life into uh, the gift that God has given them and um, yeah, humbling yourself to say, hey, God has given you this. Maybe he gave me that too, and we can talk about it. Or maybe you can teach me the things that um, you've learned in this process and the unique mm -hmm. way that God is making his will known in your life. Um, that's a really wonderful uh, means of connection and community uh, that you just can't really get without taking that first humbling step uh, to really just engage. So that would be that would be my recommendation um, for anybody wondering how they can just get started today. Just meet people, uh, say hi, listen very intently, um, and just do honor to people who are made in God's image. Yeah. And I like especially what you're talking about in terms of a lot of the episode we talked about um, gatekeepers and sort of the corruption of the gatekeeping institutions and the lack of confidence that we uh, have in them now because of that corruption. But the reality is, is if you are part of a gatekeeping institution like uh, the church, uh, like a local church, if you're a pastor or a leader, just like Abby's saying, that doesn't mean like, oh, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. It's like there's everything you can still do. Yeah, totally. The, the goal, you know, as according to Jesus, is to seek his kingdom and and the righteousness of God. And honestly, I do think if people were honest with themselves, they would recognize that a lot of the church structures, systems, programs, and ministries are oriented around maintaining the happiness of our highest tithers. Yeah, that's probably true. And that's bad. Yeah, yeah, sure is. Missing out on the whole congregation. Right, and it's also one of the main reasons why there's so little trust in these gatekeeping institutions. Because if mm -hmm. they were actually doing their jobs, then they wouldn't be wondering about whether or not they're going to exist 10 years from now. Anyway, on that dismal note, <laughs> but thanks for bringing that up, Abby, because that's true. Like, we focused on yeah. the individual and the, you know, the average person in the pew, and I, that's probably the majority of the people listening to this podcast. Yeah, I think most people probably um, don't think about their personal responsibility, but rather like, well, my church does stuff like that, so like it's fine. Right. So I think it's good to err on the side of the individual, but to bring in the church too, I think is a note. But I, I agree. All right. <laughs> awesome. Abby, thank you so much. Cool. Yeah, for sure. So next month's episode will be an exercise in the kind of attentive listening we've been talking about today. If you ever wanted to practice intentional listening, this is your time. <laughs> this is your chance. <laughs> That's right. We're doing a deep dive episode with Sean Sullivan, the mind and heart behind the band Warbler. We're releasing Warbler's third record soon, and you'll get a chance to hear it first right here on this podcast in its entirety 
next month. And then after you listen to the record, Sean and I have a lengthy discussion about the record from conception to composition to lyrics to production to talk about everything. And uh, and so I thought it would be fitting for the end of this episode. I'm going to play an as yet unreleased track from the album Wrestling to give you a taste of the delights that you're in for next month. This track is called The Sixth, and it's from Warbler's forthcoming record, Wrestling. See? 